I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 18, The Right of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, by Randy Ingle, pages 9.24 to 9.31. Teresa has also suggested that my relating some of my bad experiences in the church and what drew me into the church might be helpful to some people. I hope that they will help some people, and I'm very happy that my prayer in episode 17 for the Holy Spirit to open my heart and mind to his work in the church touched her heart, and that my calling Satan a stuffed lion, stuffed toy lion, was something that she had never heard before and gave her a new perspective on it. I was drawn back into the church after the priests and many parishioners' hypocrisy and pretentiousness had driven me out of it into much evil because I came back to the realization that the church doesn't belong to those kinds of people as long as they are intent on remaining that way, but belongs to and is for those people who really want to reform their lives and want God to work that change in themselves and not just cover up their old natures with the camouflage and pretense of holiness. We shouldn't, any of us who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, just hand over and abandon the church to these modern Pharisees, the very kind of people whom Jesus was always arguing against and with and trying to expose their hypocrisy and pretentiousness. That is a betrayal of Christ as much as or more than Judas's betrayal of him for 30 pieces of silver. Since this betrayal of Jesus from his time down to ours occurs over and over again and keeps selling him out repeatedly, not just once as did Judas. There have been many incidents of such Phariseeism that I have experienced myself in the church. One such incident was with the business manager, in quotes, of our former parish church. Incidentally, Business manager doesn't fit in any so-called Catholic or spiritual church. Business managers only belong in businesses, since that is the only appropriate place for them. If the church isn't just another business and money-making racket, it doesn't need what businesses and money-making rackets need. By the use of that term, the church is telling the world that that just another money-making racket is exactly what it is and contributes to the cynicism and disrespect against the church. It wouldn't do any good at all to just use a different term for that job, as long as the work involved is still the same as that done by a business manager, since a rose by any other name smells the same. And a business manager by another name is still the same job. Our so-called priests keeping this money changer in our church, despite Jesus' very clear example of driving the money changers out of the temple and showing his disapproval of such people being in the house of God, prove that he puts worldly and financial considerations above the revealed word of his God and proves his corruption and worldliness. Even if business managers are actually needed for the church, they don't have to be right in the church since Jesus never had any problem with money changers in the rest of Jerusalem, but only when they practiced money changers inside the temple. Anyway, our money changer came out of the Adoration Chapel after I had left it to go into the hallway to make a phone call and started his snobbish and condescending 
and self-important, I am the business manager talking down to your routine on me. But I cut him off quickly by giving the same right back again, telling him that he was interrupting my phone call and to go away and leave me alone. And he had this incredulous and disbelieving look on his face as if to say, how can you say that to someone as important as a business manager in our church? As though everybody is supposed to be as impressed by his title or himself as he is. None of us, except very gullible people, are impressed by such titles or persons. That same day, I sent a postal letter to him and a copy to our so-called priest denouncing his pretentiousness, self-importance, and hypocrisy. None of that is the humility that parishioners and priests should be practicing and teaching others by example, and that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach God's people in the church, as I mentioned in episode 17. My brothers, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man with gold rings on his fingers and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say, Sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil designs? James 2, 1-4 Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his own face in a mirror. He sees himself, then goes off and promptly forgets what he looked like. But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres, and is not a hearer but for, who forgets, but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. James 1, to 25 Snobbishness and other such disrespectful attitudes are far more common sins in the church than are pederasty and homosexuality, though they are certainly deserving of all the condemnation that Randy Engel and we have been putting on them. People shouldn't keep practicing the same sins as people out in the world practice, though they go to church for years and decade after decade after decade. That refers to pederasty and homosexuality and all of these other sins too. They might as well go golfing or go to a movie, or go out to breakfast, or be doing anything else that leaves them the same at the end of it as they were at the beginning, and was never expected to do anything else, as go to church every Sunday, which is supposed to change people at least a little bit every time, and be basically or exactly the same after the end of 40, 50, or 60 years of church going as you were the first time that you went. Some will say, well, God isn't finished with me yet, and so don't be judgmental. But God could hardly finish with anyone that the person has never allowed him to start on in the first place. And any change that is actually going on inside of anyone is going to be manifested in the external actions and demeanor of that person and not be able to be kept totally inside and a deep, dark secret just between the person and God. By their fruits, which are external, you will know them, not by what they say is going on inside of them, but isn't externally evident at all. The Pharisees' true internal spirit and nature were revealed to Jesus by their external actions and demeanor, 
no matter what they said about themselves. And he called them whited sepulchres and a brood of vipers. This disconnect between the inside spirit and external actions and words and demeanor is what allows mafiosi to call themselves good Catholics while continuing in a life of crime and all other Christians to go on sinning. Don't be judgmental has always been said by Pharisees and means from them, don't look at anything I'm doing and compare it with what I'm saying or you'll see I am a hypocrite. And now my reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, pages 924 to 931. Like the American bishops, the superiors of religious orders, both at home and abroad, have large slush funds that can be tapped to finance pet projects. Religious orders in the U.S. file no tax returns, so it is impossible to track their funding, including monies diverted to pro-homosexual causes and organizations. The financial books of religious orders are not open to diocesan or parish lay or clerical audits, and in some and in some cases even regular members of the community have not been permitted access to their orders' financial records. Some religious orders have used their tax exemptions, tax exemption status to launder funds to homosexual groups, especially large contributions that come from wealthy individual donors. This writer also suspects, but cannot prove, that some U.S. religious orders have transferred their financial assets to their headquarters in Rome in order to escape court penalties awarded to victims of sex abuse committed by priests or brothers from their congregation. As a rule, religious orders are directly responsible for their own finances and financial administration, and the Holy See respects their autonomy. It is rare for Vatican inspectors to take control of the finances of a religious order unless the threat or reality of public scandal and exposure related to gross financial irregularities forces the Pope to intervene. All religious orders have newsletters and in-house publications that can be exploited by the homosexual collective. Some orders, like the Paulus and the Jesuits, publish their own magazines and books, which can provide the collective with a free, ready-made conduit for promoting its ideology and political agenda. One of the earliest examples cited by Rueda was a pro-homosexual editorial that appeared in the June 25, 1977 issue of America, the popular Jesuit magazine. The editorial reads in part, the use of biblical injunctions against homosexuality by Anita Bryant and her followers was hopelessly fundamental, fundamentalistic. Theological scholarship recognizes today that the application of scripture texts that condemn homosexuality is dubious at best. The phenomena of homosexuality as it is understood today covers too wide a range of inclinations and behavior patterns to be suspect, to be subject to sweeping condemnations. Furthermore, the overall tone and principal argument of the Save Our Children campaign headed by Bryant not only lacked 
Christian compassion towards homosexuals, but also violated basic justice in, per in perpetuating a lie. There is no scientific evidence to suggest that children are more likely to be molested by homosexuals than by heterosexuals. Religious orders own a great deal of property and are in a position to provide conference halls and housing for homosexual collective functions, including gay lectures, retreats, and political meetings, including gay political caucuses. Order priests hold, hold important chairs at Catholic universities and can play an important and invaluable role in indoctrinating students in favor of the philosophical underpinnings of the homosexual collective, especially in the field of biblical scholarship, religious orders, and criminal molestation. A sizable number of order priests have been involved in sexual abuse and sexual misconduct allegations in U.S. dioceses across the country, but with rare exceptions, they have managed to escape the media's attention because the religious life of an order priest as a rule is more private than that of a diocesan priest who serves in a parish or works for the chancery. Cash settlements to victims of sexual abuse or misconduct by religious orders can be handled in a more secretive manner as can the demands of blackmailers. Some religious orders have kept, have become adept at hiding their financial resources by creative bookkeeping or by transferring their assets to their superiors in Rome. Many Catholic male religious orders own and operate on old boys' private secondary and preparatory boarding schools and private day schools as well as church camps all of which have become a popular hunting ground for clerical pederasts. Since most religious orders operate international religious houses and priories, clerical criminal sex offenders can and have been shipped abroad to escape criminal and or civil prosecution with the full knowledge and assistance of their superiors in the United States and Rome. Some religious orders, by virtue of their loose-knit rules and infrastructure are more vulnerable to take over by homosexual cliques than others. The post-Vatican II fad of permitting religious to live outside the community in private quarters has provided a more fluid environment for those members who are living in, act, living in active homosexual life. There is no one to monitor their comings and goings or the long line of particular relationships. Some orders, like the missionaries of the precious blood, have refused to implement AIDS testing for candidates to the religious. In after-the-fact cases, morally wavered order priests and brothers who have contracted AIDS through homosexual activity have been hidden away in hospitals and medical facilities operated by the religious order. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has opposed mandatory age testing for seminarians to the diocesan priesthood and the religious life. Ironically, one of the great blessings of religious life, that of the intimate bonding of brother with brother in Christ, has been turned into a cover for vice and criminal activities. 
there is no argument that religious life by its very nature promotes greater personal ties and loyalties amongst its members than the diocesan priesthood. When a member of a religious order has fallen, no matter how grave the crime, the instinct of the members of the order is first and foremost to protect the offender, their brother, from the consequences of his actions up to and including participation in a cover-up. The unwillingness of most religious to offer fraternal correction to fellow brothers whom they know to be living debauched lives, homosexual or otherwise, or to bring their concerns and complaints to the attention of their superiors, gives an advantage to those who wish to subvert the order for their own ends. Even in cases where a religious has sexually molested a minor or a physically or mentally handicapped person, superiors of orders, not unlike bishops, are inclined to take matters into their own hands rather than report the crime to local police enforcement officials. Often it is the lone whistleblower, not the offending cleric, who becomes the object of scorn and isolation in a religious community infected with pederasts and homosexuals. For many religious orders, the term infiltration in regard to the homosexual collective does not apply since these orders have an open-door policy welcoming gay candidates. Although an order may require a homosexual candidate to be chased for a short period of time before ordination, a provision which generally cannot be enforced, there is no question that the order is willing to accept homosexual candidates. In a, May, in a March-May 1978 article in Studies in the Spirituality of Jesuits, William Barry S.J. argued that, the, that self-accepting, non-destructive homosexuals who believe that they have a calling to the Society of Jesus should be admitted to the novitiate. I see no a priori reason to doubt the authenticity of the call, he wrote. Barry discussed the dangers of placing a man with same-sex attractions in an all-male environment that demands celibacy. He said that seminaries are no longer the cloistered hothouses of the past. However, he did voice concern that a homosexual novice's feelings might be hurt by offhand and cruel remarks about homosexuals. Barry appeared to be oblivious to the reality of homosexual solicitation or acting out of homosexual behavior at a seminary, or the fact that a certain percentage of homosexuals will act out their perverted sexual fantasies with minor boys. Whether a person is homosexual or heterosexual in orientation is not a matter for public knowledge, Barry said. He concluded that Jesuits in the past, whether homosexual or heterosexual, have been able to live with relative wholeheartedness a life of consecrated virginity and service to the Lord and his kingdom. Rueda has a more traditional and realistic take on the admission of homosexuals to the religious life. He notes that a religious house with several homosexuals obviously constitutes a veritable powder keg, not only because of the danger of liaisons between the homosexuals, but because of their potential to molest and or seduce heterosexual members of the community to whom they feel attracted. Once homosexuals are received 
or actively recruited into an order and take their final vows, the tendency of their non-homosexual brothers is to bury their heads in the sand and hope for the best. It isn't until the homosexual young Turks take over the order and cast these poor souls out into the street without money or a roof over their head or health insurance that reality begins to sink in. By then, it's too late for them and too late for their order. CMSM sex abuse policy draws fire. On August 7 to 10, 2002, the Conference of Major Superiors of Men, CMSM, met at the Adams Mark Hotel in Philadelphia for their annual meeting that included a seven-hour closed session on how religious orders were handling sexual molestation and sexual misconduct in their ranks. The meeting followed the well-publicized June 2002 Dallas meeting of the American bishops on clerical sex abuse. A major point of contention among the 250 provincials and superiors representing religious orders across the nation was the controversial one-strike-and-you're-out past, present, or future policy proposed by the U.S. CCB Ad Hoc Committee on Sexual Abuse at the June meeting. Following the marathon session on sex abuse, CMSM President Franciscan Father Canise Connors reported to the anxiously awaiting press that the policies proposed by the ad hoc committee for dealing with diocesan priests convicted of child molestation needed to be modified to meet the needs of religious orders. There were valid objections that the policies proposed for adoption by the bishops were in conflict with the code of canon law that regulates both seculars and religious. He also stated that the special nature of religious life requires a different approach in the handling and final disposition of religious conviction, religious convicted of criminal pederasty. His comments drew a hostile reaction from many abuse victims groups. Father Kenneth Connors, a controversial figure in his own right, said that religious orders believe that they have the obligation to care for their fallen criminal brothers convicted of child molestation and held out the possibility that some could be reassigned to positions within the order and connected to public ministry, such as archivists or assistants in infirmaries or retired priest's houses, homes. The CMSM membership did not support, did support the concept of independent review boards to advise the religious, to advise religious superiors on questions and policies related to the sexual abuse of minors by order priests and brothers, as well as support for research on effective treatment programs for clerical sex offenders involved with minors. There was also much support for programs of expanded dialogue and healing and reconciliation between offenders and their victims and families. Obviously, one could make the case that since religious 
are called to the highest state of moral and spiritual perfection. The superiors of religious orders should be the first, not the last, to dismiss brothers who violate their sacred vows and commit a crime of seduction and molestation against a child. Connors did not. In fairness, it should be pointed out that the views expressed by Connors as a representative of the CMSM are not held by all religious. Some prefer a more hardball approach to dealing with clerical sex offenders, especially those who prey on minors. Reverend Joseph McLaughlin, a religious studies professor at St. Michael's College in Colchester, Colchester, Vermont, operated by the Society of St. Edmund, offered the following personal observations of the church's handling of sex abuse by diocesan priests and religious. I think the church has a responsibility not only to him, the offending priest, but to the people. Something should be done to prevent that behavior from happening again, if you can. The proposed review boards, which would be composed of mostly lay people, is a positive step in holding church officials more accountable. Having parents participating in discussions would bring a drastically different perspective to the table than just clergy. I think there's a value in having priests being answerable to the people they serve. Since priests were ordained to serve, let's have them somewhat answerable to the people they serve. The church doesn't have a good history with criminal charges. I'm doubtful that all dioceses are going to set up effectively criminal proceedings. I just don't know that we have the training and personnel to do that. I think it would be better to turn it over to the state. I'm not sure the church is going to fulfill the expectations for the abused abused or the accused. I have more confidence in the state's system. The following cases of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct by members of religious orders confirm Father McLaughlin's observation that the church does not have a good track record in dealing with clerical criminals and that overall both the abused and the accused would be better represented under the state's system of secular justice than that of the church. The Order of Friars Minor, the scandal at St. Anthony's Seminary. St. Anthony's Seminary is located in Mission Canyon, Santa Barbara, California. It was established in 1898 as a minor seminary by the province of Santa Barbara of the Order of Friars Minor operating in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. The still breathtaking architectural structure sits on 12 acres behind Mission Santa Barbara, which was founded by the Spanish Franciscans in 1786 and is rightly called the Queen of the Missions. St. Anthony's Seminary served as a boarding school for male high school students aspiring to be Franciscan priests or brothers. Between 5 to 10 percent of its graduates went on to become Franciscan priests or professed brothers. In 1987, the seminary closed its doors due to alleged financial problems. The real reason behind the closing, however, was an an irreparable state of moral turpitude wrought by rampant pederasty. On November 22, 
1993, the Independent Board of Inquiry regarding St. Anthony's Seminary submitted a confidential final report on sexual abuse at St. Anthony's to Father Joseph P. Chinichi, OFM, the Provincial Minister of the Order. A modified copy of the report was released to the public on November 29, 1993. It is significant that the impetus for the creation of the Board of Inquiry charged with investigating alleged criminal activity at St. Anthony's involving the sexual abuse of seminary students came from the St. Anthony's Seminary Greater Community, a parish-type group of dedicated Franciscan laymen and not officials of the Franciscan order who had foreknowledge of the abuse. The first accusation against friars at the seminary was made by Paul Smith, a former student at St. Anthony's, who claimed he was repeatedly molested by Reverend Philip Way Wolf, a Franciscan friar and teacher at the seminary. The sexual abuse took place from 1981 to 1984 and included incidents of molestation in Smith's home when Father, Father Wolf was an overnight guest. The Smith sexual abuse incident was followed by the arrest of Father Robert Van Handel, founder of the Santa Barbara Boys Choir, which has always enjoyed a close relationship with the, with the Franciscan Order. Father Van Handel, the subject of a three-week investigation by the Santa Barbara Police, was arrested on March 22, 1989 and held at the Santa Barbara jail on $250,000 bail on charges of lewd and lascivious acts involving children. Lay members of, the, of St. Anthony's greater community were so outraged by the two incidents that they pressured the Franciscan Order and Santa Barbara's boy choir, boys' choir to send out a joint letter to former members of the choir and seminary to establish whether or not other boys had been actually abused by the friars. In the fall of 1992, the Franciscan lay group held an open community forum, at which time two additional families reported that their sons had also been sexually abused by Father Van Handel. At this point, the greater community moved for the establishment of an independent investigative board of inquiry to examine the nature and extent of sex abuse among the Franciscan friars at St. Anthony's Seminary, including those friars who had connections to the Santa Barbara Boys Choir, St. Anthony's Board of Inquiry. The original interim six-member board closed, chosen to investigate the St. Anthony's Seminary sex abuse scandal included an attorney as chairman. Three psychotherapists with experience dealing with child molestation, a Franciscan friar who worked at St. Michael's Center, operated by the servants of the paraclete for problem clergy, and one down-to-earth victim advocate by the name of Ray Higgins, whose son had been molested by two Franciscan friars at St. Anthony's. The board convened on June 14, 1993, and was briefed by Father Chinichi. Its general mandate was to assess the nature and extent of sexual abuse at St. Anthony's Seminary from 1964, the year marking the tenure of a third alleged offending 
prior until 1987 when the seminary closed. The board agreed to keep the names of all the victims and perpetrators of the crimes confidential and not to report the numbers and victims, numbers of victims and abusers until the report was made public. The members of the board were on a fact-finding mission. Their primary task was to identify victims of sex abuse at the seminary and to identify their alleged perpetrators. Their approach to both groups was to be pastoral and therapeutic and confrontational. Pastoral and therapeutic, not confrontational or punitive. The board was solely responsible to and reported directly to Father Tenenci, the Franciscan Provincial. The board used a series of mailings, including an initial letter sent to 950 former students who had attended St. Anthony's between 1964 and 1987. Detailed follow-ups in the form of questionnaires, personal interviews, phone calls, and written correspondence were conducted with those who claimed that they were sexually abused by the friars during this time period. Officials representing the Franciscan province of Santa Barbara agreed to pay for therapy for victims and their immediate family. The board drew up a list of certified therapists available in the Santa Barbara area and prepared a bibliography of recommended books and materials on sexual abuse victims and sexual abusers. The board acknowledged that the liberalization of seminary standards following the Second Vatican Council had contributed to the rise of sexual abuse at St. Anthony's. The board noted that after Vatican II, seminary officials terminated the office of prefect of discipline in favor of class moderators. There was also an increase in the degree of familiarity between faculty and staff and the seminarians that before the council would have been viewed with suspicion, even condemned. The board stated that perpetrators of the abuse violated canon law as well as the rules and constitutions of the Franciscan order, or what was left of them, never mind that first and foremost they broke God's law, violated their sacred vows, destroyed another person's life, and ruined a possible vocation. Despite the goodwill of the board members and the promise of complete independence in their investigation, it soon became clear that they were working under severe limitations, especially with regard to their non-legal advisory status. The board was not authorized to identify any offender not previously known to the public. This was the prerogative of Father Chenichi. It was his responsibility to identify suspected abusers among the friars, and he alone was empowered to take appropriate actions that were in line with canon law. Province policies, precepts of confidentiality and respect for personal privacy and the therapeutic progress of any given offender. The agreed-upon procedure for any friar not previously identified by the order as being a pederast was that the board give his name to the provincial. The provincial, in turn, would send the suspected abuser to a West Coast Center for Evaluation and Treatment. The accused would then return to the community of friars to be assigned to other duties, 
not involving minors and strictly monitored. These procedures did not include turning the friar suspected of the molestation over to the police for trial and possible jail time. Unlike a grand jury, the board had no right to subpoena either the victims or their alleged abusers. The board was also under no mandate to disclose their findings to police officials. This choice to report or not report was deemed to be the sole prerogative of the victims, nor was it the board's responsibility to encourage or discourage civil rights, civil suits against the abusers or the Franciscan orders. The board served only in an advisory capacity to Father Tonecci, who made the final determination on the fate of the friars suspected of sexual abuse. One of the recommendations made by the board in its report under the title Prevention of Future Abuse was that candidates applying to the order undergo psychological testing to assess for deviant attraction but not for sexual orientation values, behavioral risk, and dysfunction. The deviancy evaluation was to be accomplished by the administration of specific screening tests, including a polygraph test, fingerprinting, and the use of the penile plethysmograph test that involves subjecting the candidate to pornographic visual stimuli and measuring his penile erotic response. That the board recommended that young men applying to the order should be subjected to the moral degradation of the Peter meter speaks volumes of the mindset of the board. Further, the fact that sexual orientation, i.e. same-sex attraction, same-same attraction is not included and the definition of deviant attraction indicates that the board did not view homosexuality as a disqualifying factor for candidates to the novitiate. The board stated that the Santa Barbara province set out clear behavioral guidelines for friars to follow. It warned, however, these should not be set forth nor be seen as rigid, repressive controls, but rather as indicators and guideposts for behavior that witness a, to a truly gospel life. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, Article 2 in the, full, in the Fullness of Time, Sections 2598, 2599, 2600, 2601, 2602, 2603, 2604, 20, 2598. The drama of prayer is fully revealed to us in the Word who became flesh and dwells among us. To seek to understand his prayer through what his witnesses proclaim to us in the Gospel is to approach the Holy Lord Jesus as Moses approached the burning bush, first to contemplate him in prayer, then to hear how he teaches us to pray in order to know how he hears our prayer. Jesus prays, 2599, the Son of God who became Son of the Virgin also learned to pray according to the human heart, to his human heart. 
He learned the formulas of prayer from his mother, who kept in her heart and meditated upon all the great things done by the Almighty. He learns to pray in the words and rhythms of the prayer of his people in the synagogue of, at Nazareth and the temple at Jerusalem. But his prayer springs from an otherwise secret source. As he intimates at the age of 12, I must be in my father's house. Here, the newness of prayer in the fullness of time begins to be revealed. His filial prayer, which the father awaits from his children, is finally going to be lived out by the only son in his humanity, with and for men. 2600. The Gospel according to St. Luke emphasizes the action of the Holy Spirit and the meaning of prayer in Christ's ministry. Jesus prays before the decisive moments of his mission, before his Father's witness to him, during his baptism and transfiguration, and before his own fulfillment of of the Father's plan of love by his passion. He also prays before the decisive moments involving the mission of his apostles at his election and call of the Twelve, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ of God, and again, that the faith of the chief of the apostles may not fail when tempted. Jesus' prayer before the events of salvation that the Father has asked him to fulfill is a humble and trusting commitment of his human will to the loving will of the Father. 2601, he was praying in a certain place, and when he had ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And seeing the master of prayer, the disciple of Christ, also wants to pray by contemplating and hearing the son, the master of prayer, the children learn to pray to the father. 2602. Jesus often draws apart to pray in solitude on a mountain, preferably at night. He includes all men in his prayer, for he has taken on humanity in his incarnation, and he offers them to the Father when he offers himself. Jesus, the Word, who has become flesh, shares by his human prayer in all that his brethren experience. He sympathizes with their weaknesses in order to free them. It was for this that the Father sent him. His his words and works are the visible manifestation of his prayer in secret. 2603. The evangelists have preserved two more explicit prayers offered by Christ during his public ministry. Each begins with thanksgiving. In the first, Jesus confesses the Father, acknowledges and blesses him because he has hidden the mysteries of the kingdom from those who think themselves learned and has revealed them to infants, the poor, the beatitudes. His exclamation, yes, Father, expresses the depth of his heart, his adherence to the Father's good pleasure, echoing his mother's fiat at the time of his conception and prefiguring what he will say to the Father in his agony. The whole prayer of Jesus is contained in his loving adherence of a human, in this loving adherence of a human heart to the mystery of the will of the Father. 2604. The second prayer before the raising of Lazarus is recorded by St. John. Thanksgiving precedes the event. Father, I thank you for having heard me. 
which implies that the Father always hears his petitions. Jesus immediately adds, I know that you always hear me, which implies that Jesus, on his part, constantly made such petitions. Jesus' prayer, characterized by thanksgiving, reveals to us how to ask before the gift is given. Jesus commits himself to the one who is given, who in giving gives himself. The giver is more precious than the gift. He is the treasure. In him abides his son's heart. The gift is given as well. The priestly prayer of Jesus holds a unique place in the economy of salvation. A meditation on it will conclude section one. It reveals that it reveals the ever-present prayer of our high priest and at the same time contains what he teaches us about our prayer in, to our Father, which will be developed in section two. And that's all my readings and commentaries for now. And so I'll end my podcast here. May God bless this podcast and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.